Good morning, Tuolumne Community Baptist Church. I'm so glad you're tuning in this morning. Today is July 10th, just after the 4th of July. And I know, I know, I know you didn't get a podcast last week. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Read it. Um, I'll pick up some of that today. Um, I'll review chapter 8, and then we'll be looking at 9 and 10 today. I so apologize. I thought I had it recorded, and for whatever reason, it did not record. And this week has been such a week that I haven't had any opportunity to do it over again. So, read chapter 8. I'll cap a recap on it today, and then you'll see chapters 9 and 10 today. I hope you're enjoying this study through Corinthians. Right now we're in an area that it seems, to some, it may seem, well, really dry. You know, I don't really want to hear about giving and generosity and all those kind of things, but it's so much more. If we say that we're a Christian, if we say that this is what we believe, then shouldn't we know how to act? Shouldn't we know how to respond to someone in need? I think it's important, and I believe the Apostle Paul did too. That's why he was addressing the Corinthian church, and that's why he's addressing us today. So, God bless you. I hope you enjoy this this series on 2 Corinthians. It'll get started here in just a minute. God bless you. I hope you come out and see us soon. Bye-bye. Father, help us to see all that you have called us to see. Sometimes we get into your word and it can seem so repetitive and, and, and yeah, we heard that, we heard that. But Father, help us see beyond that. Speak to our hearts. Grow us, Father, from the inside out. Father, we just thank you for all that you do. Bless this word as we get into it today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Can we give the worship team a hand, please? It's so good to have Tony back. If you weren't here last, Tony wasn't here last week. If you weren't either, you missed the Milborn family that came and led us in worship was fabulous, but no matter how good they are, they weren't Tony. It's amazing, you know, when it's one of your own, it's just different. It's just different. So today, well, let me apologize. Some of you who listen to the podcast and may not have been here last week, I thought I'd try that really cool thing that I did out at the park and record the message with my phone in my pocket. It didn't work last week. And uh, I don't know why. I might have bumped my whatever and shut it off. Who knows? But it just did not. So I apologize to all my podcast listeners, and I do have a lot of them out there. Um, I didn't redo the message for you, but if you read chapter 8, I'll do a follow-up a little bit on chapter 8, and and you won't miss a thing. The follow-up on 
chapter 8, we can say it in one word, is accountability. Accountability. Paul chose a committee, a team from the contributing churches to help him deliver the offering to the struggling Jerusalem church. Why? Why would he do that? Well, for accountability. Every church should follow the strict operating rules regarding the finances of the church. Few things give Christ and his church more bad press than a scandal involving church finances when it's been made public. Upon further review, many of those affairs could have been avoided by simply following protocols with God's money. Many churches have written guidelines of how the offerings must be handled. These can include having two deacon minimum for transporting the offerings or giving no single deacon the complete combination to the church safe. And that's so to speak. Two deacons in succession need to operate the safety lock. And you know, I got to say this, our church does this very well. Long before I ever came here, they do it very well. I don't know if you guys, you're all leaving. There's a couple of guys, a couple of guys or a couple, you know, a couple of women. They go back there and they start counting the money and they take care of it. I don't handle it. It's, it's a blessing to see how our church has followed strict protocol and how the church finances are handled. It's so important. It's so absolutely important. And I want to say thank you to this church for handling it that way. It, it's, it's an awesome blessing for me as your pastor. I feel like I should have combined in chapters 8 and 9, but I didn't do that. So today I'm going to combine 9 and 10. Chapter 9 completes the conversation from chapter 8. Chapter 9, contributing financially to the needs of others, represents a concrete expression of love and is grounded in the example of Jesus who became poor to make others rich. Generosity is a byproduct of sincere love and is defined by willingness and capacity, not by the amount given, but when he has made a commitment, but when we have made a commitment, fulfilling our commitment should be the priority among God's people. Can I get an amen? amen. It is so important. Well, pastor, I don't like it when you talk about money. Well, I don't like it either. But you know what? It's an important thing for us to talk about. It's important to realize what it is to be generous. I found this online. Seven reasons why generous people are more likely to be successful. I found it on lifehacks.com. I don't even know if it's a Christian organization, but they had a great point that he made. It was wrote by John Patrick Hickey. He said, who doesn't love a generous person? Many of us have been blessed by a person who has helped us in a time of need, given us advice when we were confused of or just kind of when kindness was needed. Where being generous is great for those who are around such people, the habit of generosity does a great deal for the person who practices it as well. Truly, generous people are often successful people. Let's look at number one. Generous people are happy people. 
you will be hard pressed to find a generous person who is grumpy and unhappy. And that's the absolute truth. People who are willing to share their time, possessions, and talents are often some of the happiest people that there are. Number two, generous people are more relaxed. There's no greater stress than the feeling that you are in need or that you have to get more in life. Greed as well as a sense of poverty poverty drive people to constantly worry about what they do not have. Generous people, number three, are willing to work hard. It's a common trait in people who are generous. Have you ever realized that? Generous people are people who know that it takes hard work to succeed. But they're also generous with their money, with what they have. Number four, generous people are kind people. Just as you will have a hard time not to find a generous person who is unhappy, you will not find one who is not kind. Generosity is all about kindness. Number five, generous people are free people. The strongest prisons in the universe are those built on greed, want, and selfishness. They are chains that hold you down from achieving real success in life and limit you to, to all you have hoped to do. The only thing that breaks these chains, well, is Jesus Christ, but generosity that he brings into our heart and into our lives. Number six, generous people have better relationships. It's just a fact. Happy, kind, and generous people have more friends and better friends and stronger personal relationships. Number seven, generous people are confident people. When you are not the center of your inner universe, you will find that you not only feel better about others, that you feel better about yourself. Amen? Amen? That's really what this chapter 9 is all about, is learning how to be generous and understanding that it's not about the amount that you give. It's not about that at all. One of the most common questions that's asked of pastors and has been asked of me is the question on tithing. Do I tithe on the net or the gross? Well, jokingly, I answer, do you want your blessing on the net or the gross? I mean, it's, it's really up to you. But we really have to understand the word tithe. It means tenth. The West question could be uh, related, restated another way. What is the least amount that I have to give to keep God from getting mad at me? That's one thing you could be saying. John Ortsberg says... It's like going to your mom on Mother's Day and saying, Mom, what's the least amount of money I can spend on your present without <laughs> severing our relationship? I mean, that's what it's like. God is the giver of all things, and he wants us to have a generous heart toward him. God rejoices when we are aware of his goodness and provision and when we desire to give him our best as an act of love. 
I personally have been taught that the 10% tithe has been around for over 6,000 years or more, and God has never asked for a cost to living raise. All I can tell you is that it works. It works. It's made a difference in my life. And it's not that I was hanging on to that 10% thing. It's just there's always been a love and a drive in my heart to give God the best that I could give. And, you know, this is how you can see change in people. I was talking to Ira this morning, and he came in, and he was all smiles, and he was looking at me, and I didn't get a chance to connect with him, and all of a sudden, he disappeared. And I thought, oh, man, I didn't get to, to hug him. I didn't get to talk to him. He said, I had to run home. I forgot my tithe. Ira, that's how you know when a heart is changing. That's truly how you know. I was so blessed when you said that to me. I said, we could have waited till next week. He said, no. God's blessed me with incredible work and paying me an incredible amount. And I've got to give it back to him. I've got to show him love and generosity of my heart. You can't find a drug addict to do that. Right? Can I get an amen? You can't find a thief that's going to give out of his heart. Because he's a thief. It's like the Bible has a scripture in Ephesians. I think, you know, when is a thief not a thief anymore? Well, it's easy. Number one, he finds something to do with his hands. He creates a new trade. He, he gets a job. He learns something new. And then he's willing to give out of what he has to others. That's a changed heart. That's how we know that we've changed. So let's look at 2 Corinthians 9.1. Be the next slide, Jack. Next slide, Jack. There we go. Got it. Now concerning the ministry to the saints, it is superfluous. You know what that word actually means? Unnecessary. Why couldn't he wrote unnecessary? I must have looked through 10 different translations and it was all. I think they like writing that word. Super, am I saying it correct? Superful, what? Superfluous. Superfluous. How about unnecessary? Amen. Amen. For me to write to you, verse 2, for I know your willingness about which I boast of you to the Macedonians that Achaia was ready a year ago. Your zeal was stirred up, has, has stirred up the majority. Well, I read that, and, and immediately I went, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought it was Corinth that year ago. It was. But he wrote in this one, he decided to put Achaia. Achaia was formerly known in the days of the Greek Empire. Macedonia was the center of Greek power. But under Roman rules, political situation had changed, and the name Achaia was usually identified with Greece. So what it was is, yes, it was Corinth, but they were in Achaia. They were the capital city of Achaia. So he said Achaia in this case, but he's meaning the Corinth church. A year ago, you guys made a commitment to give this offering, and it stirred everybody up over in Macedonia and all these other places. But you never gave the offering is what it's about. Verse 3 Yet I have sent the brethren, lest our boasting of you should be in vain, in respect that, as I said, you may be ready. 
So he knows the time has come due for the commitment that they had made. They had raised this money in, in theory. They spoke it. They committed it. We're going to give this money to go to Jerusalem, but they hadn't yet given the offering. Now, maybe they put it in their own bank account and savings. And we're, I don't know. But the Apostle Paul was making sure I'm going to send people ahead to let you know it's time to get this offering together because we've already bragged about you guys to all the other churches. Now, should he have not been bragging? I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. Look, verse 4 says, Least if some Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to mention you, should be ashamed of this confident boasting. There was a commitment made by the church in Corinth, and Paul was reminding them, he wasn't strong-arming them for this offering, but letting them know a commitment is a commitment. I truly believe it wasn't the faithful in Corinth that he was addressing, but there were others. There were others who had infiltrated this church that were totally against, and you're going to see even more when we get into chapter 10, where they were really against Paul, and they're telling people, hey, Paul's just working you guys for money. That's what this is all about. Lying his pockets. They were trying to turn the people against Paul. And it was in a lot of really bad ways. Verse 5. Therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time and prepare your generous gift beforehand, which you had previously promised. That it may be already as a matter of generosity and not as a grudging obligation I think he probably could have said if, if you guys are really grudging this I'd rather not have it if you're really so worried about your money don't don't give it this has to be a generous gift coming from the heart he said in verse 6 but this I say he who sows sparingly will reap sparingly and he who sows bountifully also will reap bountifully. Beautifully placed, Paul. Beautifully placed in the word. You know, what's he giving here? This is a farmer's analogy. He's talking about planting. And if a farmer is going to plant this little field over here, and he's just going to put seed over there, but he's not going to put any over here, that's all he's going to reap as what he's planted. But if he decides he's going to reap fluently all around, then he's going to reap multitudes. Verse 7. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity. For God loves a cheerful giver. And that's what I love is that God wants a cheerful giver. That's what I saw in Ira this morning. He couldn't wait to go back and get, get his money to bring it back to give it to God. Because he wanted to say thank you, God. There's no better way to show. Verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you always, having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. Can I get an amen? amen. This is what God is promising us. And he's not demanding anything. Give what you can afford. Give what's in your heart to give. He said in verse 9, as it is written, he 
has dispersed abroad, he has given to the poor, his righteous endures forever. And just so you know, that's Psalms 112 verse 9, and that is word for word. Paul chose the next part of this chapter, I believe, as a prayer. Verse 10. Now may he who supplies seed to the sower and the bread for food supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness. While, verse 11, while you have enriched in everything for all liter, <clears throat> liberally, which causes thanksgiving through God, through us to God. Verse 12. For the administration of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also is abounding through many thanksgivings to God. Verse 13. While through the proof of this ministry, they glorify God for the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ and for your liberal sharing with them and all men. Verse 14, and by their prayer for you, who long for you because of the exceeding grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his incredible gift. That's a prayer. He was praying this over the people because you guys are awesome. He knows that just a certain few, and you're going to hear that when we get into chapter 10, that we're really holding him back. So now with 2 Corinthians 10, verse 1, he says, Now I, Paul, I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and the gentleness of Christ, who in the presence am lowly among you, but being present am bold toward you. We got to think about that a little bit, what he just said. I, Paul, myself, I'm pleading with you who in present, when I'm with you, I am lowly among you. Don't look at me as I'm something special, because I'm not. I'm lowly among you. But when I'm absent, I write a letter, and it appears to be bold towards you, because what I'm saying is true. Verse 2, he says, But I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. Can you hear it? Can you hear what he's saying? He said, I beg you when I am present that you guys don't make me be bold because there's a few in the church that are probably going to stand up and say, no, 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 we don't have to give this offering. You're just lining your pockets, Paul. You're trying to, to milk these churches and get all that you can get from them. And that wasn't the case at all. This was a gift that was promised to the church in Jerusalem, and they were in dire need. He said he intended to be bold against some, those who were accusing us of walking in the flesh. Verse 3, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. Man, that's a bold statement. The apostle is trying to convince them to hold true to their commitments and is not trying to intimidate them at all. But remember, we've talked about those intruders in the church and they've been spreading rumors of the apostle trying to rip them off. 
Hence, I intend to be bold against some. That's what Paul was talking about. Verse 4. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God, pulling down strongholds. You guys recognize these statements? We quote this stuff all the time. Verse 5, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. How many times have you heard me say that? Bringing every thought. The Apostle Paul is now talking to himself. Talking to himself that because he could very easily begin to have a sinful nature against these people that are talking badly about him. He said, I got to cast down every argument, every high thing that exalts himself against Christ and bringing every thought. Every thought of what I might be thinking bad about you, I have to bring into the obedience of Christ because they are sons and daughters of Jesus Christ too. Verse 6, and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Man, I think I could just park there for a while. And bringing ready to punish all disobedience. Capturing every thought. Capturing every thought. Well, how do you, how do you bring it into obedience? By changing your thought, by capturing it and giving it to God. I know what they're doing is wrong. I know what they're doing is against me. But it's not my place to judge them. It's not my place to accuse them. It's my place to correct my thinking and what's going on and what, how I'm thinking about what's going on. It's so important. The Apostle Paul wrote it here beautifully because he was struggling himself. He's just a man like any other man. And he's dealing with people that are coming against him. And it's not the whole church. It's just a mere few. He said in verse 7, Do not look at these things according to the outward appearance. If anyone is convinced in himself that he is Christ, let him again consider this in himself. That just as he is Christ, even so we are Christ. So yeah, there's a few here that he may be mad at. But he's got to remember they belong to Jesus too. They're his. So I need to check myself and check everything that I'm saying, that it's not out of anger, that it's not out of pure frustration. I'd like to go down there and just slap him. And I don't blame him. I think I would feel the same way. If somebody was accusing me of taking money from the church, pilfering funds from the church, it would be so offensive that I'd want to just, you know, I'd, no telling what I'd want to say. But he's telling us to bring it all under control. He said in verse 8, For even if I should boast something more about our authority, which the Lord gave us for edification and not for your destruction, I shall not be ashamed. Man, listen to what he's saying. Even though I'm telling you I have the authority to say what I'm saying because I'm your pastor. But you have to trust that I've taken it before the Lord. 
And when I come and say, son, you're wrong. But I love you and I want to try to help you to correct your thinking. I want to try to help you correct the way that you're going, the things that are happening. When I have these precious ones that I come in and I counsel them, sometimes I have to be stern and say, listen, you're wrong. Straight up. You're going to get mad at me. But I love you. Please don't get mad at me because we are all in Christ together. But I'm going to tell you the truth. And that's what Paul is trying to tell them here. Don't just walk away. Don't just walk away mad. Let's get to the bottom of this. Verse 9, least I seem terrifying, seem to terrify you by letters. Now that he refers to the, to the church that we're doing okay. You read these letters and he goes, oh man, he's really mad at us. No, I'm not mad at you. I'm trying to reach those that are inside the church. And, and it's in today's church too. We have those that come up that are uprising and, and going against things that we have taught. And we have to lovingly deal with it. Verse 10, he says, For his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is contemptible. These are those that were in the church talking smack about him. Do you see that? He says, For his letters, they say, that's those who have made these accusations, are weighty and powerful. Yeah, what he had to say was weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech was contemptible. Well, we talked about back in 1 Corinthians, the appearance of Paul. And he's not what, you know, when I see Paul in my mind, I picture my, my spiritual dad in Christ, a big six foot six man that's really the, he wasn't. He was a short, squatty, bull-legged, bald man. He was educated, and he was fluent in his speech and the different languages that he spoke, but he wasn't all that we would appear for him to be. And they were trying to use this against him. Verse 11, let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters when we are absent, let me, let me read that the way it's supposed to. Let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters when we are absent, such we will also be indeed when we are present. Again, very powerful statement. Very powerful statement. And I try to see this in every possible way. I, I, I apply it to my own life. And I hope and pray that when you see me outside of the context of this church, that I'm the same guy that you see when I'm here on Sunday morning. Ready to stop and pray with you in an instant. Not dropping four letters every here and there and, and talking vain things, but I hope that I'm the same guy. You come to my house, I'm the same guy that I'm here as I am here, as there as I am here. It's so important for us to be who we say we are. Verse 12, we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves. For we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with the pastors of the big churches. 
but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. They are not wise. You know, I can remember when I first started going to my Thursday morning coffee with these pastors in the community. And a couple of them have fairly large churches. And I was just really getting to know them and, you know, I didn't never, I still don't say a lot. I just there listening and, and I made a statement once. I said, well, we're just a little church. And man, Pastor Pat came to me just almost in front of everybody. He said, don't you ever say that again. Don't you ever say that again. It kind of shocked me. I said, well, I just said, no, don't you say it again. You are exactly where God has called you to be. And he has placed you with the people that he's, that he's called you to be with. If he wants to put 10,000 people in your path, then that's what he'll put. But if you're teaching 50 or 30 or 40, whatever it may be, that's what God has called you. Don't you say, I'm just a little church. You're mighty in God's work. And you know what? I've never said that again because it stuck. It really took. Verse 13. We, however, will not boast beyond measure, but within limits of the spear which God has appointed us, a spear which especially includes you. I do brag about our church, but I make sure that I don't overdo it. You know, it's, it's, it's just common sense. We don't want to boast beyond measure. Verse 14, for we are not overextending ourselves as though our authority did not extend to you. For it was to you that we came with the gospel of Christ. He's saying that's all it was about. It was about you receiving Jesus Christ. That's all it was about. That's all that it was about. Verse 15. Not boasting of things beyond measure. That is in other man's labors. But having hope that as your faith is increased. We shall be greatly enlarged by you in our sphere. You know you have no idea. We, we think this church, it was 40 people here maybe. But how many people do you all know? And you hear something at church that blessed you, that touched you, that made a difference in your life. You're going to tell somebody in your sphere. You're going to tell somebody in your world. I can't see all the people that you know or know all the people that you know. But yet you take the gospel, you take what's coming to you from this church. We've increased greatly. Our numbers now are greatly. I've got over 5,000 listeners on the podcast. Who are those people? I don't know. But it's, it's our sphere. It's what God has, has placed. He said in verse 16, to preach the gospel in the regions beyond you and not to boast in any man's spear of accomplishment. Verse 17, but he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. For he not, for not he 
commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commends. It's not about me telling you how great I am, because you know that I'm not. I still struggle with my reading every Sunday. I still struggle. Satan tries to get in there and tries to really mess with me. But praise God. It's God who's called me to be here. It's God who's placed me and it's God who's taught me how to read.